Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company, ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to episode six of the Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name's James Banks uh, and I'm head of external relations in EMEA for ACOM. Today's podcast is an International Women in Engineering Day special. Now in its sixth year, the campaign aims to raise the profile of women in engineering and focus attention on the amazing career opportunities available in the industry. As this year's theme is Transform the Future, we're going to focus today's conversation on skills. After all, without the right training and skills in place, our future would look rather bleak. As always, I'm joined by my regular co-host, ACOM structural engineer, author, and soon-to-be mum, Roma Agrawal. Hello, Roma. Hello. I have to say, soon-to-be mum, and also say an extra thanks uh, for being here today, because I think I'm right in saying this is your, your last appointment before you go on maternity leave. Well, I couldn't miss this. Couldn't Not miss this the world. world, no. <laughs> How are you feeling? You ready to go on maternity leave? Um, yeah, rather big. To be honest, I didn't, so, well, I didn't yeah. want to say it. So. <laughs> Roma, would you mind introducing our two fantastic guests that we've got today? Yeah, with absolute pleasure. So, today, firstly, we have ACOM's Chief Executive for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, Lara Poloni. Over a career spanning more than 25 years, Lara has predominantly worked in the planning, assessment, and development of major infrastructure in the transport, energy, and telecommunication sectors. Lara has held several leadership positions since joining ACOM in 1994, assuming the role of EMEA Chief Executive in September 2017. She was previously the Chief Executive of ACOM's Australia and New Zealand operations. Welcome, Lara, and thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Rama. Our second guest today is Dana Walker. Dana is the founder and director of Built By Us, an award-winning social enterprise which exists to actively champion greater diversity and inclusion in the construction sector. Much needed, I'd say. Her career spans over 20 years in construction and the built environment, encompassing various roles, including electrician and architect, and within the field of vocational education. Dana is currently a board member of Public Practice and former charity trustee and elected board member for the Architects Registration Board. Welcome, Dana. Thank you for having me. Firstly, if I may ask you both the same question to kick things off, what does success look like when it comes to skills? What are engineers in 10, 20, 50 years, what are the skills that they're going to need to succeed? Lara, can I start with you on that? I think it's a, a big question, James, and I will preface it by saying from my vantage point, it's obviously engineers are a, a key part of that, but uh, from the ACOM perspective, it's the range of the, the full spectrum of professionals that work across the infrastructure and built environment, for example. So it's everything from environmental scientists, planners, quantity surveyors, engineers, all the complementary disciplines that come together to deliver major infrastructure for our cities. And I think when we look ahead to the future, we're certainly recognising that there is a very strong digital component, digital technology component to that. So it will mean that all of those technical experts will need to work increasingly alongside data scientists. And I would say also collaboration is the name of the game in terms of successful planning and delivery of these projects for our cities. So 
many more partnerships with the communities in which we live, with the key government agencies, with uh, local and international partners that can help us deliver these projects. So partnerships and collaboration in addition to obviously strong areas of expertise and strongly enabled by digital technology is the, the name of the game. Dana, what are your thoughts? A huge question. And I'd like to um, build on some of the points that you raised, um, Lara, which are excellent ones. I see engineers of the future and built environment professionals of the future as sort of facilitators. This need for collaboration, which um, Lara touched on, I think is going to become even more important as we grow and learn alongside the sort of growth of um, digital technology in some ways. You know, we can't exactly see what that engineer or what built environment professionals will be doing exactly. I imagine that they won't be exactly as we know them now. They will have um, technical skills, but the, there are other skills that they'll need to develop just as strongly alongside those sort of technical skills. So it's the softer skills as well? I think so. I think it's those softer skills, interpersonal skills, being able to be, um, you know, building more on the sort of creative skills as well. Um, there's been lots of kind of um, bits of research talking about the jobs of the future and which jobs might sort of disappear and which might remain. I think engineering is definitely going to be one of those jobs that remain. It would just be about how it interacts with the rest of the built environment sector. That's absolutely the message uh, of key institutions such as the Institution of Civil Engineers here in the UK. There's a strong message there that obviously we will, we will continue to rely on key engineering disciplines, but we need uh, universities and the industry to come together and recognise that there is, as, as Dana said, a, a much stronger need for those softer skills. And they should start to be introduced into the curriculum. They should continue to be learnt on the job as they are in, in places like our workplace because you can only go so far with pure technical expertise um, and you need that those engagement skills particularly when we talk about the community and other stakeholders so we need further development of you know leadership interpersonal development communication stakeholder management particularly on the more complex infrastructure projects that we work on we know that we can only go so far without you know, those softer skills to sort of facilitate, to play that role of, of facilitators, as Dana mentioned earlier. And one thing I find fascinating, first of all, clearly both of you are very, very skilled in the soft communication skills and, and all of that. So it'd be interesting for me to understand when you think you develop that through your careers. But also maybe just starting with you, Dana, you've played lots of very interesting different types of roles in the built environment since you started your career. So I'm interested in how you think... Um, in terms of kind of the skills of the future, will we be seeing more people like you that have, you know, multi-skilled across different sectors within the built environment? What, what, what do you think that might look like? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I hate to generalise, but there are lots of bits of research that look at um, what a millennial career might look like. And lots of people talk about these sort of more portfolio careers. I didn't know what a portfolio career was when I started. So <laughs> I left a girl's school <laughs> at 16 and thought, I'm going to be an electrician because... You know, I wanted to work. My mum said, as soon as you earn money, you can do whatever you want. And so, great. I thought I'd get onto an apprenticeship. But um, I don't mean to interrupt you, but that is unusual for a young girl of 16 to say, I'm going to do an apprenticeship and mm. be, becoming an electrician. How, how did that happen? 
it was incredibly unusual. Lots of people looked at me like I might have kind of lost the plot a little bit. <laughs> there were so few women at the time. There are so few women doing um, trade and craft apprenticeships or doing that role now, less than 1% actually still. So it? then I, I probably was, you know, the 0.0001%. The trailblazer. <laughs> absolutely, <Yeah. laughs> absolutely. So it, it was seen as something incredibly unusual for a young woman to do. However, for me, that actually made me want to do it more. And I think it allowed me to see construction in a completely different way. And that actually helped me to uh, progress my career and then train as an architect and then actually work across industry in this kind of more vocational role for the Construction Industry Council. Could you tell us a bit more about your mission, I guess, to try and improve the diversity? Because you're looking at diversity, I think, in the truest sense of the word. It's not just about gender, for example. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Absolutely. I mean, this is something that has come up time and time again over my career, that lots of people from different backgrounds would be speaking to me about how they felt about working in this industry. It's an amazing industry, just looking the view out of your window in these offices, and you can see these incredible structures going up. But there is a huge part of our society that isn't encouraged to be part of that making, of that creating, of that debate about the built environment. I got so much joy out of it. I feel that it's really important that as many people as possible can be part of that um, discussion. And yes, there's a breadth, I think, to diversity, which is not just about singling out a particular characteristic. It's about being as broad as possible. If you're not being broad, I don't see that you're really doing diversity. Mm. So, Lara, tell us a bit about your, I guess, is it portfolio career? Do you think you have a portfolio career? I certainly didn't think it was a portfolio (laughs) career. I thought that was something you carry with you like a handbag probably (laughs) in those days. But um, I I think I was fortunate in in terms of my first degree being a a broader one, you know, so much more social sciences background. And it was interesting when I first started working in the engineering sector that it was commonly up to me when we would go out, say, to public consultation to describe and engage with the community about the impacts of a major highway through a township, for example. A lot of my engineering colleagues, particularly the ones who had studied very intensively and with deep subject matter expertise in vertical geometry or bridge structures, probably struggled in terms of just a plain English explanation of what the impact of the project would be. So I think having that broader background certainly helped me with a lot of basic communication and and engagement and explanation in terms of understanding the broader context in which these projects lie and those communication skills, I think, both in the, the written and the spoken word, because we know that we need to be able to do both in terms of the sort of sector that we work in. So I think over time, many of the universities in particular understood and talked much more so about the broader social and economic impact of the work that we were doing rather than, again, just that initial starting point, which was purely and highly very technical. And that's what, you know, traditionally engineers have learned. So I think, I think it's changing, but a lot, of it hap- a lot of it will continue to happen on the job, I think. But I think there is definitely a growing recognition that some of those softer skills need to be taught or people need to have experiences even as they're studying to understand the you know the art of negotiation of communication it just makes everything else that we're doing which is so important from a purely technical point of view it informs it and it gives it context particularly when you need to engage with others to make those projects successful if you were to start your careers again and you had the knowledge that you have now how would you best position yourselves for for the future you're not, you're not making it easy today, are yeah. you? No, I'm not. No, come on. 
knowing what I know now, God, that's a really interesting question because often I ask myself in the current climate when I do what, what I'd done before. I started university as a mature student and at this point, I kind of question whether I'd go down that route again in, in the exact same way. I think what's exciting about um, now, I could have gone from an electrical apprenticeship into an architecture apprenticeship, which is something that is now being sort of pushed and developed. It's incredibly exciting. I think, actually, the training in architecture is so incredibly broad. It's, it's a fantastic training, and I think... It's actually now that I've left actually practicing architecture each day that I really recognize the value of it because there's so much around sort of critical thinking and being creative and problem solving, all of which I think are key skills for now and for the future. So I think, yes, circumstance might have had more of an impact than the actual route itself. I think in, I wish I had have been exposed to just the full spectrum of all the, th- the, the skill sets that we need today. So I think, as Dana mentioned, creativity, regardless of which industry you work in, and opportunities to innovate. We, didn't get ta- we weren't given a lot of room to truly innovate or think outside the box. I think in a lot of the traditional study that we do, it was very much textbook. I think concepts like that are more broadly understood and even in the projects that we do and the sort of evaluation criteria that our projects are sort of, you know, measured against the yardstick. Innovation is now commonplace in in terms of how we sort of progress design thinking in particular and bring diverse perspectives to the table. I also wish, I mean, I, I think it's important to always have that broader economic backdrop. You know, we are designing nowadays in a value for money environment with a lot of constraints. I mean, we're using the example of infrastructure. There is a finite supply of funding available to, you know, global scale shortage of of infrastructure, but growing need for capacity, growing congestion in all the cities that we, we work in. So in order for our projects to be successful and for that pipeline to continue to grow and for more ideas to be brought to the table, they do need to tick the box in terms of value for money and economic justifications. I wish I had a studied beyond first-year economics. That is my own personal (laughs) reflection on that. I would have been a lot shrewder in terms of the sort of economic rationale of earlier in my career rather than just thinking about the environmental or the the technical Mm. sort of arguments or rationale for a lot of the work that we do. Yeah. Mm. So I think the main messages I've been picking up since we started our discussion is about collaboration, coming together, a broad range of skills, communication's been incredibly important, So, Lara, I guess from your perspective, what do you think industry can do to try and make sure that we are furnishing young people today with the right skills to build our future infrastructure? I I absolutely think that the technical expertise is is critical and diversity of that technical expertise because a lot of the, the projects in our cities will continue to require technical solutions and quite complex technical solutions. So we will still need to understand the geology of a a city and the the complexity within which we're designing. I just think we need to continue to bring very those complementary skill sets that I mentioned before. And again, in, in the spirit of most cities requiring, you know, more out of less when we look across the project life cycle and the limitations on funding, this is where technology comes into its own as well. So the reality is, there isn't, you know, a couple of decades of big greenfield projects or, you know, the space or the the money available to do that. So we will be looking much more at brownfield solutions. So technology has a critical role to play in terms of smart motorways, metering solutions in terms of, you know, asset performance, 
the rail network and some of the capacity solutions to that. So, you know, this new technology is already upon us. I mentioned even community engagement. Most proposals that we take to the community now are enabled by virtual technology mm -hmm. as a means of not just us explaining on a plan or a set of drawings what the impact will be, but people, you know, the community can actually see through virtual reality what that looks like. So absolutely we need to provide the next generation with the digital smarts to be able to mm. anticipate what's next and what can be further um, realised on that front. But absolutely, as I think Dana and myself have both been saying, we need to continue both, you know, in the education sector but also in the workplace to enable people and, and skill them up with respect to the, those skill sets to drive collaboration and engagement and, and listening. And all of that will work together in a very complementary manner on top of that, those base technical skills, which are fundamentally, will remain fundamentally mm. important. So, so yeah, there's, there's a lot for industry to do. And I guess, Donna, you've sat on, you know, different boards, you've been trustees of different boards. So from your perspective, um, what do you think you know, government, that's kind of the other side, you know, mm. we always talk about the fact that industry and government need to collaborate more also to upskill people. So what are your thoughts on, on that perspective? Mm. Um, well, I guess there are sort of two ways to look at this. Firstly, the sort of education system. So government plays a huge role in that in terms of um, playing a part in curriculum design. Over the past few years, we've seen a number of issues around what actually goes into the curriculum and what gets taken out. It seems incredible to me, given the importance of our built environment, the importance of infrastructure, that I'm signing petitions saying, don't get rid of design and technology. Well. Why? Why on <laughs> earth is that a thing? I think in terms of the vocational pathways um, away from that sort of initial education, there's been lots of kind of tampering and, and um, sort of thinking about that. But I, I actually, I'd like to slow down the change, particularly for um, England and Wales. Um, we've seen this growth in the opportunity to do apprenticeships, but actually there's, I think there's a lot of confusion in terms of what all these different types of courses, et cetera, et cetera, mean. So I think there's an opportunity for government to work with business even more closely in terms of bringing some stability to that and making sure that we're getting what it is that we need in, in terms of skills. And then in terms of upskilling, at the moment, I think lots of organisations take this upon themselves in terms of training, obviously, the professional bodies have an interest in this and actually drive this. But there are still opportunities for people not to upskill. So I'd like to see some of that address where you know if you're working in the professions if you're working in infrastructure you're constantly mm. um, needing to and it's a requirement not a voluntary thing right. but it's a requirement to keep um, upskilling and I think in terms of my role with um, public practice that's such an exciting project because it's about bringing um, different kinds of skills from the private sector back into local authorities where they haven't been for a very long time. And what I mean by that is for the most part, the um, local authority is commissioning a project and then bringing in a, a group of people who work on a project, deliver it, and then maybe disappear again. With something like this, it's an opportunity for the people within the public sector to upskill, but also the people who are coming in from the private sector are seconded to upskill. That's incredibly exciting because that's about two worlds kind of coming together mm. and learning from each other. I'd love to see more of that kind of thing that isn't just about progression routes and chartership. It's mm. much more about partnership, isn't it? So I think yeah. absolutely there's a lot more that 
private and public can do together in that space. I think as you were speaking, Danny, the other thing that came to mind for me was obviously we've been talking a lot about skill sets, but a lot of it is cultural too. So as an industry, and in order to continue to reflect the society for which we're designing and to look more like the clients that we as an industry are serving, we do need to create sometimes those interventions that make sure that diversity is, and we, we are talking about women in engineering today, obviously gender diversity is one dimension to that, but I think that's a journey that we're all on on both sides, you know, on the public and the private sector. So continuing to share best practice on that front, particularly in terms of the skilling up, we, we, I'll use that word skilling up, of our managers to step back sometimes and say, you know, are the, the teams that I'm fielding on this project the most diverse that I could have in, in terms of drive? Because we know that diverse teams drive that innovation that we talked about earlier and make for better outcomes. And it's measured in so many different ways in terms of productivity, greater innovation on the job, all of those things. So I think that whole cultural layer of diversity is another important thing that we are, we are trying to make happen every day as well. And we've got some good examples from ACOM, don't we? Which I think is we great. We have so, so many great examples. <laughs> Thank you for asking. But, uh, <laughs> well done, and and well it, is, it is very firmly on our, our business agenda. But again, while we're talking about skills, I mean, obviously we have a, you know, in, in many of the markets that we operate, a real, you know, shortage of skills. And one example of that is the returners program that we've just instituted here in the UK very successfully. And that is all about encouraging both men and women who have been out of the workplace for a long time, for whatever reason, to come back and for us to sort of sponsor that for initially for a period of six months. And we can say that just through the first year of that program operating here, that I think we had a, a dozen in the initial sort of program and more than three quarters of those returners have gone on to full-time roles within our organisation. So we're absolutely committed to very simple programs like that, which are hugely engaging for those returners and, and really bring that sense of confidence back mm -hmm. to re-enter the workforce and for industry to absolutely make use of, you know, fantastic expertise and talent and skills that uh, had just been on hold for a while. So there's that. There's certainly the M-Circles concept that we operate around the world, which is, you know, more women in particular within our organisation leaning in and sharing stories and uh, about, you know, particular areas of support and career coaching type conversations. We know that that's been successful and that's that's through the power of the, the network and that can exist internally, which is critical for maintaining that pipeline of, you know, the next generation of, of women mm -hmm. talent to, to come through our organisation. So there's certainly a lot yeah. happening. And I think, Donna, you've been involved in some mentoring programs as well. You know, I'd be curious again to see what the outcomes have been for different programs that you've been involved in. Mm. Um, well, can I say, first of all, the returnee program sounds amazing. It sounds absolutely brilliant. We definitely need more of that kind of thing. We could have returning electrical engineers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. We lose so many skills. People may um, leave the workplace because of caring responsibilities, maybe due to illness. The amount of times I've been in the back of a cab and they say, oh, I used to be in construction and then I left when the recession hit and they never come back. Yeah. And we have this conversation actually on a quite a regular basis about skills shortages and skills crisis, etc. One of the reasons actually that I started doing these mentoring programs was to look at this issue of retention. Um, so we could see from the data, A, we're not necessarily getting huge amounts of diversity into the industry, but when we do, sometimes we lose them a little mm. bit more quickly. 
So how could we actually keep people engaged? How could we provide the um, role models so that people can see someone that kind of reflects them a little bit more in leadership roles? How could we actually help people who might be in much smaller organisations to build confidence and exchange knowledge? All of these different things I felt we could address through um, mentoring. So we run a a few programmes now. Probably the biggest is something called Fluid. So that looks at career progression and leadership. And that enables us to um, match people who are very driven in their careers, but are wanting to progress. I want to see how much they can contribute and match them to a mentor who wants to support them on that journey. It's a fantastic um, programme to be a part of. I'm not just saying that because I run it, (laughs) but because of what people come back and tell me about it, about how they transform, about how the mentees become mentors for others in in the industry and in their offices, about how it changes their perspective. So many of us are in actually very small organisations. It's more typical for people in construction to be in SME or micro-businesses, teeny-weeny businesses. So having someone with a completely different perspective is incredibly powerful. And the people that come on the programme tell us that it's life-changing, and I'm so pleased that they do. How do you see the role of the, of the engineering institutions changing and adapting over the coming years to make sure that we're meeting this challenge? That's such an interesting question. Um, A lot of the institutions are kind of celebrating centenaries and that kind of thing Mm. on a basic, you know, these sort of 100 years, 75 years, 50 years, that kind of thing. They come from a place where to be connected, you needed to be a member of something. Is it still the case? To a certain extent, yes, because they very much sit within kind of standards and education and that kind of thing. However, it feels to me like they need to also perhaps collaborate a little bit more and start to look to industry in terms of what the needs are, where those crossovers um, come in. It's important to have those specialisms, absolutely. However, sometimes I think we're almost too siloed as an overall industry. It's quite hard to kind of describe the built environment industry because people kind of see it and frame it in lots of different ways. But it seems to me that having some of the engineering um, bodies or many of the engineering bodies actually collaborating together, looking at whether some of the course content and curriculum could be um, jointly delivered or assessed, that kind of thing, will start to underpin this need for a slightly different professional and a more sort of collaborative approach. I think there's that word collaboration again. So I, I've certainly, over the last 25 years, whether it's, you know, in the, in Australia predominantly, but I've certainly seen it here, there, there's been a change and an evolution. So engineering has always been a, a great example of a very structured program for, you know, encouraging young professionals to, you know, achieve their, their chartered engineer status, which is really important to have that framework and clarity of what it will take to sort of step through and achieve that chartered status. I know in a lot of ancillary disciplines, it was, you know, you, you never had that. So I, I think that was always a good thing. They have absolutely evolved, though, to understand, to relax, A, the membership, um, in inverted commas. But, but that came out of recognition that engineering on its own is not a solo contributor to the success of many of these projects. It requires very strong collaboration with allied disciplines and other partnerships. So I think absolutely the engineering profession has evolved and, as I mentioned earlier, a great example of that is this recent report of the ICE here in the UK which acknowledges that the importance of those soft skills in addition to continuing to place, you know, strong emphasis on deep technical expertise as well and 
a stronger but broader foundation around that in terms of those other skill sets that engineers require to be successful. So I think there's been you know, very, very good evolution of the professional bodies and many more partnerships with the academic institutions and with private industry in, in particular. So that, that's all been pretty positive, I think. So here's another maybe difficult question. <laughs> if you were thinking about young people or people from different professions that were thinking of now joining the built environment, what would your message to them be? Mm. I think it's a dynamic and exciting place to work, absolutely. And, when, and whether you talk built environment or infrastructure, I mean, what an amazing career opportunity to, at the core, at its very essence, to sort of contribute to what our cities of the future look like and how we can make them sustainable and livable. I think we work in a, we're very lucky to work in a very dynamic and, you know, impactful profession that you can see all the way around us that can leave a, leave a real legacy for generations to come. I think the words of encouragement would be around continuing to make sure that you are exposed to as broad a curriculum of learning to help you get there and making sure that you are open to as many lateral experiences within the workplace as you can and obviously managers need to enable that to happen but to you know put your hand up to be skilled or to receive mentoring and coaching and some of those other softer skills that will really enable you to be successful I think. Absolutely. For me, the message would be the built environment touches on every aspect of your life, where you live, where you learn, where you work in the future. This would be my message to young people. Be part of that conversation. Be part of making the change where change is needed. The built environment has such a huge impact on our lives. And I think where so many people are missing from that conversation, um, there's a richness that we miss out on. And when I say we, I mean society as a whole misses out on that contribution from a, a wider range of people. So join, be part of it. Well, I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just to, to, to probably to end, I think, I just wanted to know whether are you optimistic about the future? We talk a lot about what things need to be changed. Are we looking at an uphill struggle or are we... Are we getting there? Are you optimistic in the way that things are, that we're going to be ready? I'm really optimistic. I, I worry about speed and obviously the sort of digital environment that we're learning. I mean, I feel like I'm personally going very slow and I need to be trained up by some of the younger people in our organisation. But I look at the progress that we've made just in the short space of a few years and I'm pretty optimistic that we can get there. What it means for workplaces like ours is that we will need to be open to bringing in skill sets and professionals with a very different point of view or, you know, background, technical background. So more of the chief digital officers and, and people who can work alongside those engineers to think long term around where technology is going, regardless of whether you're working in rail or ports or highways or other sectors of infrastructure, for example. So I'm confident that by continuing to invest in that training and the different disciplines that we bring in, that we'll be absolutely well served. But we can't stand still and we need to move mm. fast. I feel optimistic but impatient. Um, so I feel that, yes, the conversation has definitely taken on a kind of momentum around what we need to be as an industry and, and who needs to be working in the industry and the variety of approaches. But we don't necessarily see that reflected in the makeup of industry overall, I think. The larger organisations, um, organisations like ACOM, have been playing a fantastic role in terms of your own organisations and working with your supply chains. 
but there's a really large kind of fragmented industry out there that also needs to uh, move forward. So I'm constantly thinking about how we can help to kind of push things along and get the speed of conversation um, as quickly as it's happening with sort of large organisations there. So optimistic, but impatient. It can be a bit scary. I mean, talking to people about artificial intelligence and, mm. and there's a personal sort of vulnerability and, you know, sense of mm. replacement or redundancy that comes with that. But on the same side, it can be really exciting and it just means you can apply your skills in a different way. So... Lots to think about and plan for. Lots to think about, indeed. Thank you very much, Lara, and to Dana Walker as well for joining us today. And of course, thank you to Roma. Um, best of luck with your maternity and uh, your journey into motherhood. As a, as a father of a one-year-old, I can say best of luck. Enjoy, <laughs> enjoy and relish every second of it. Yeah, you look a bit bleary-eyed today, James, I have to say. <laughs> thank you. George has been in a teething, I hear. Yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> As James has said, this is going to be my last podcast for a while, but no doubt he'll be back soon with another episode. I will. So until then, please subscribe, leave a review, and of course, tell your friends to do the same. <laughs>